Look around, what do you see? Cars, lots of them. And guess what? They're probably on Auto Trader. Whether you're into timeless classics or the latest trends, did somebody say solar-powered, eco-friendly, vegan, leather-wrapped, aromatherapy-scented, disco ball-equipped, self-driving car? If you see it on the road, you can likely find it on Auto Trader. Big cars, small cars, blue cars, new cars, used cars, electric cars, and one day, maybe even flying cars. With millions of options to choose from, buying a car becomes a whole lot easier. See it. Find it. Auto Trader. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh. There's Chuck. Jerry's here. And uh, this is Stuff You Should Room. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff You Should Know, everybody. Calm down. Stuff You Should Know about a specific car, car maker, a legend, and uh, possibly a real jackass. (laughs) Who did this for us? Was this Livia? Uh, Yeah, Livia helps us with this one. Can we read how she titled it? Sure. John DeLorean, colon, celebrity weirdo car maker. (laughs) (laughs) She pretty much nailed it in the title. It's true. Like, he was a celebrity. He was very weird. And he was a car maker. As a matter of fact, that's where he started to get his celebrity was in car making. But she likens it, um, and I think quite correctly, to the the rise of, or he, he prefigured the rise of the worshipped tech god like Elon Musk or Mark yeah. Zuckerberg, these people who have been held up um, to these amazing standards and, like, you just think they can do anything. They're doing all this amazing stuff when it really mm-hmm. turns out that they're, you know, they just want to party with some starlets, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's a lot what John DeLorean's life was like. He was like, okay, I got here, and now I want to do everything that's fun and has nothing to do with how I got here. And that inevitably leads to the downfall. Or, as I saw it really aptly put in one of the articles, um, he succumbed to that uh, most American of maladies. Mm-hmm. He's, he believed in his own myth. Mm, yeah. You never want to do that, everybody. Have you seen either one of the documentaries? I haven't yet, no. Okay, there's two. There's one I watched a couple of years ago called Framing John DeLorean. Mm-hmm which is a uh, sort of a weird mix of documentary and narrative film in that they do these very like high quality, like it's a movie recrees, recreations mm-hmm. for those of you not in the biz, <laughs> uh, with Alec Baldwin as John DeLorean. And then there was another one. There's a three-part on Netflix called Myth and Mogul John DeLorean. Uh, I think it's, I don't know why they split these up because it ends up being like two hours and 15 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the three parts put together. But uh, they're both really good, and I watched both of them before this was even an idea uh, because I was a little fascinated with the guy because uh, I'm a child of the 80s, and I remember, as you probably do, on the rare occasion when you would see a DeLorean, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. or be in a neighborhood where the kid's like, there's a DeLorean in our neighborhood. <laughs> like so-and-so's dad has one. Uh, they were that rare, that cool, that different. Uh, and I also lived in Bernardsville, New Jersey after college, which was just about three or four miles from where John DeLorean lived. And I remember when I moved there, they were like, yeah, John DeLorean lives like right down the road. Oh, is that when he lived in his estate or his condo? Yeah, that was when he lived in uh, Bedminster. And we'll get to the, the history there and whose hands that ended up in. But uh, DeLorean was just a person who really, I was at the right age, I think, when it all came crumbling down. And of course, back to the future, like he was just someone I was fascinated with. And I loved watching these docs and I loved like doing this research. Well, I mean, he is a, an astoundingly fascinating person. Yeah, Especially- I'm not saying I hold him up to some like great human, but just fascinated yeah. by him, like you said. There there are people out there who do, who consider him a visionary and he was. his image. He was, sure, but he was also like a straight up grifter yeah. and a con man in <laughs> a lot too. of really, really important ways. Yeah. He was also what I would call a proto-douche, as it will become apparent <laughs> later on. Sure. But he was all of these things and more. He was also a great self-promoter. Yeah. But what's amazing about it is if you step back and look at his background and where he came from and how he became famous, mm-hmm. it was through his own smarts. Oh, yeah. It was through his own uh, great education that his parents made sure he got. It was He was an engineer. He was a car engineer, and that's yeah. how he made his name, by doing really good, amazing work. And then eventually he kind of Peter principled himself out of that work and into, that's when he started to get into trouble. Yeah, I think when I was younger, when I was a teenager and knew sort of the lore, I thought that he was just some rich guy who had this vanity project of a car company. Mm -hmm. Um, I did not know until much, much later that he was a really great sort of brilliant engineer and like put so many great cars on the map at GM as a, yeah. as a young executive. Yeah. And uh, I think I appreciated him a lot more as like, okay, this guy, like, he knew what he was doing. He uh, he had certainly tons of faults, like you said, but he wasn't, I just thought he was a, a rich guy who's like, I want a, a cool, different car. No, no, he definitely knew what he was talking about. And apparently, when he was coming up with the DeLorean DMC-12, the DeLorean, the only model he ever came out with, um, God, I hope that's correct. <laughs> because we're going to get so many emails if it's not. But I think I'm, there were I'm a positive. few versions of that one. Okay, but they were all DMC-12s, right? Oh, God, I think so. Now I'm okay, nervous. So we're just going to move forward, Chuck. Let's <laughs> okay. just soldier on, right? <laughs> right. Um, he wanted that to be like a valuable car. It was named the DMC-12 because he wanted to, to, the starting price to be $12,000, an affordable, mm-hmm. you know, at the time expensive, but still not out of the reach of somebody who wanted to— really get one of these. It wasn't just for the rich and wealthy and famous. He wanted it to be reliable. The prototype had airbags. It had an onboard computer. Mm-hmm. It had an anti-theft system. This is at, like in the early 80s. This is long before anybody was doing stuff like that. And so he really did want to make a really good car. It just didn't quite work out that way because he got into his own way, I would say. He had a emergency handbrake on the left of the driver, so some <laughs> angry friend in the passenger seat couldn't yank it up and kill you. Is that true? Well, I don't know if that's why I did it, but it makes sense. Put it on the left so no one else can it get really to was it. On the left. Huh, that makes sense. I wonder if it's because most people are right-handed or more people are right-handed. I don't know. 
I say we can start back at the beginning, Chuck, because we're getting in our own way now. That's right. Uh, he was born John Zachary DeLorean in Detroit, uh, no surprise, in 1925. Uh, he was born to not a lot of money. Um, in one of the documentaries, they described his neighborhood as, as fairly run down. Mm-hmm. Uh, his parents were immigrants. His dad was from uh, – he was Romanian, and his mom was Hungarian. Uh, she was a, a line worker at GE, and his dad was um, a foundry worker and a union guy, union organizer, but not a good dude. Um, drank a lot, was abusive, and he did not see him again after his about 16th or 17th birthday, I think, when his mom divorced him. Right. Um, and like I said, he was he got a really good in- education, but he was also a really great student. Um, and he went to technical school. He went to Cass Technical High School. He went to the Lawrence Institute of Technology. And he was basically set up to become a car engineer from a very early age. Um, he fought in the Army during World War II and then came back and got a degree from the Chrysler Institute. And then finally, in 1956, became a full-fledged auto engineer, starting with Packard, and then he moved to General Motors. And then with General Motors, uh, that's where he would um, start to make his name. Yeah. uh, He was married a few times, and we'll kind of touch on the various wives. It it sounds like he wasn't the best husband in the world, um, but I don't think he – well, I don't know. I don't want to go there because when you're not in a marriage, how can you comment on how it really is? Sure. You know, uh, in 1954, though, he married Elizabeth Higgins, who was his first wife. Uh, they were married for about a decade, never had kids. Um, and that's when he, like, kind of first got his career going at GM uh, with Pontiac. And he, I think in this documentary, described himself, um, early on at least, as the squarest guy at <laughs> General Motors, um, which is just noteworthy because of what he became which was certainly not a square guy at all. Right. He also had a bunch of um, patents to his name, like the recessed windshield wiper. Yeah. The hidden radio antenna. That's a good stacked one. Stacked headlights. I mean, stuff that you still see on cars today, mm-hmm. or certainly did for many, many years after he invented them. Um, and he, he ran into a problem really quickly, though. He had a really good eye for design. Mm-hmm. And he also realized that youth culture was starting to become a thing, like teenagers were suddenly invented and teenagers liked cars. <laughs> yeah, But the, the problem was Detroit was putting out a certain type of car, and that was a big, giant boat um, that you, you couldn't even feel any movement whatsoever, and you were just floating down the road, and that's what GM thought everyone would want because that's what the old execs at GM wanted. Uh, and, and DeLorean saw very early on that this is wrong. There's a whole sector out there that we're not even touching, and he really kind of focused on that. Yeah, and this was also a time, too, I want to point out that um, the car industry, if you're – a certain age, you might remember this a little bit, but if you're younger, you know, you know, foreign cars, imported cars, there's all kinds of cars out there and American cars. Sure. Some are fine, but it's just the American car industry. Back then the American car industry was, these were the biggest corporations in the world and they were rock stars. Uh, we talked mm-hmm. a little bit about it in the Pinto episode, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but these were huge, huge corporations and they were the biggest, baddest executives in the world worked for 
these car companies in Detroit. So, uh, like you said, they sort of like the big boats. He came along, said, let's make cars that are cooler. Uh, I think there were some people in the management that were, um, you know, a lot of them weren't on board, but some were on board because they were taking these kind of cooler prototypes out apparently in the evenings and like drag racing in Detroit against teenagers. Yeah, he went to work specifically for Bunky Knudsen, who made an appearance in the Pinto app, I believe. I think so, yeah. And Bunky Knudsen was running Pontiac at the time. And back then, Pontiac was just considered the lamest um, old person's um, medallion that there was in uh, any mm-hmm. car company at all, not just in GM. Pontiac was just a snooze. And so the idea that Bunky Knudsen and um, uh, John DeLorean were kind of tapped into the same vibe that, wait a minute, well, there's a there's younger kids that, that want cars and we're not making them for them. Bunky Knudsen apparently said, um, you can never sell a young man an old man's car, but you can always sell an old man a young man's car. Oh, wow. And they actually changed the car industry based on that premise. And um, the way that DeLorean did it was by taking the uh, Pontiac Tempest, which was a pretty cool-looking mid-sized Pontiac, and putting a Bonneville engine, which was a large-sized Pontiac, a Bonneville engine into the Tempest and making it go vroom really fast, which the teenagers just loved. Yeah, it was a a huge hit. Uh, Apparently, GM even had a rule that said, you can't put that big of an engine in a car this size. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did it anyway as a special option on the 64 Tempest. And DeLorean named this, of course, the GTO. Uh, it was the GTO package initially. Uh, and he named it after the uh, – it was a Ferrari, but there were sort of road racing cars in Italy uh, were Gran Turismo – I'm sorry, Gran Turismo Omologatos. Very nice. And that's where GTO comes from, and it was – a huge hit out of the gate, uh, and Pontiac all of a sudden went from snooze to, boy, I wish I had something that rhymed that wasn't lose. Cruise. <laughs> yeah. Toward the top. <laughs> oh, boy. That was per- perfect stuff you should know material. <laughs> that was the best I could come up with. No, that's right. Pontiac was just hot as fire all of a sudden. Yeah, um, so DeLorean created the first muscle car. The GTO is widely considered the first muscle car, and it kicked off this huge trend of muscle cars, and you can thank John DeLorean for that. Um, The GTO also was hugely successful because DeLorean and Knudsen and the the Pontiac gang um, figured out that you really wanted to market these things a certain way, too. Mm-hmm. So they marketed the GTO specifically toward young people. I think one of their ads said, the Pontiac GTO, buy one before you're too old to understand. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, that was that was an advertisement. There was GTO Cologne. Oh, Tom yeah. McCann came out with some GTO driving shoes. And the sole was, uh, uh, yeah, the, the sole was designed to fit right into the pedal <laughs> of a GTO so you could p- push the pedal to the metal faster and go balls out. Oh, that's right. Uh, this all reminded me of my dad uh, who, even though he was an elementary school principal, um, went out <laughs> without asking my mom at all, and he bought a Porsche 911, Wow, which we could not afford. Wow. And he immediately had the Porsche sunglasses, the Porsche mm-hmm. jacket, the Porsche hat, baseball cap, and I think like one other Porsche thing. He was not to be disturbed (laughs) while he was eating his Porsche (laughs) breakfast cereal. 
at the time, I thought, you know, you know, your dad brings home a Porsche 911. It was beautiful, and he had all this stuff, and I was like, how cool. And then I got a little older, and I was like, what a what a terrible thing to do in a marriage. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Without asking, good Lord. All the financial stress it caused, and then all this douchey side stuff he was wearing. I was just, I don't know. <laughs> We so, won't get into all that. <laughs> so back to back to John DeLorean. Because of that GTO thing, um, he was promoted to the head of Pontiac. I'm not sure where Bunky Knudsen went. Maybe this is when Knudsen went over to Ford to work with the Pinto. But he was 40 at the time. And there is a, uh, a great article on this. It's the longest long form ever. It's called Demon Underneath. It was by Alex Papadimus. It's on the outline. And he basically says that... Um, that DeLorean was the youngest general manager at GM. He was 40, and that at the time that made him basically prepubescent by Detroit standards, being 40. So it was a really big deal that he was made general manager of Pontiac. Uh, That's how big of a breakthrough the GTO was. And then, as if that weren't enough, he followed it up with the Firebird and then the Grand Prix. Crazy. So in three, three years, he invented... No, I'm sorry. In about five years, he invented the GTO, the Firebird, and the Grand Prix. I mean, legend, man. Total legend. He could have retired then mm-hmm. and, like, made his name in car history and not for a, a bad cocaine deal. <laughs> right, exactly. Spoiler alert. <laughs> he didn't, though. He decided to go a different way. And I saw it explained as such, Chuck. I don't remember who said it like this, but I think one of his um, one of his. Uh, fellow travelers from the time and in that that circle said that had he come up in sales, he would have known very quickly that partying with Hollywood types Mm -hmm. is kind of a snooze, that they're not actually good people, they're not that much fun to be around, it's kind of high stress. But he wasn't exposed to that until much later on when he became an executive. But he didn't come up from the sales side. He came up from the engineering side. So he had no point of reference for that. So to him, partying with Hollywood stars was the coolest thing you could do. And it was the first thing he started doing the first chance he got. All right. I think it's a great cliffhanger for our first break. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. 
And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Okay, Chuck, now we've reached the point Mm -hmm. where John DeLorean transforms into Dan Aykroyd as a wild (laughs) and crazy guy. I thought you were going to say Dr. Detroit for a second. That kind of works, too. But I think think wild and crazy guy is even more accurate. Yeah, very much. He, um, and, you know, this is sort of evidence of the fact that these were the biggest corporations in the world because ask any American, like, who— the top executives for GM are today. Mm-hmm. And you probably, unless you're in, you know, in the know or like a big gearhead, you probably, and even then you might not even know. But back then, like he was a, he made himself into a celebrity. He started dyeing his hair. He went gray pretty early and was a admittedly a very handsome man. But he, he just was sort of this idealized in the Magnum uh, PI era of, of, or this is kind of pre-Magnum, but just sort of that era of that machismo. He was tall, and he had this hair coming out of his shirt, like this hairy chest, and he had a button his shirt, mm-hmm. and he had this cool hair, and he, you know, he he made himself the like he said he he or like I said he said he was the squarest guy, and mm-hmm. I think he just really wanted to change that. So all of a sudden he's dating, like literally dating Raquel Welch and Ursula Andress. And these, you know, bombshell Hollywood actresses and, uh, of course, divorces his first wife in 1968. Uh, and we should mention that she sued him for cruelty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he probably wasn't a great husband. Uh, but he immediately gets married. This is sort of his M.O. He's like, let me marry someone about half my age. He married a 20-year-old named Kelly Harmon when he was 40 years old. And uh, they adopted their son, Zachary. Um, do you remember those weird Tic Tac ads from the 80s where it was a real close-up of a, a blonde lady, like, talking about how much she enjoys just one Tic Tac? Sure. That's Kelly Harmon. Was that her? Yeah, and it's Mark Harmon's sister, by the way. Oh. 
another fun thing from the documentary is um, this came from his own mouth. He was talking about his sex drive and how, like, you know, he has a pretty substantial sex drive. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, what what man in history, no man in history has ever accomplished anything that didn't have that trait. <laughs> So and I was yeah. like, oh, wait till podcasting comes around, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Chuck, think about that, though. He's the guy, he's the kind of guy who would say that to a reporter and then mm-hmm. hope that the reporter kept that in the interview when it was published. It's kind of Ron Burgundy-esque. Yeah, but way this more self-aware. Era. Yeah, yeah. Way yeah. more self-aware. Ron Burgundy was, or still is, I guess. He's, he has a podcast himself. It just kind of aloof oh, about yeah, yeah. himself. John DeLorean was very tuned into himself. Yeah. He just thought that what he was doing was the coolest thing ever and didn't realize that it actually wasn't super cool at all. Yeah. Uh, he got facial reconstructive surgery uh, and not throwing shade if people want to do that kind of thing. But he he li- he went through a big midlife crisis is how this yeah. one uh, woman in the documentary who, who wrote a book um, not about him, but she interviewed him for the book. And I think he even kind of admitted it when he hit his 40s. He lost a bunch of weight, grew out of sideburns, started dyeing his hair, mm-hmm. got chin and jawline implants mm-hmm. to make him look more masculine and rugged and started dressing. I think uh, it was that guy that wrote the article, Papa Demis, said uh, he starts showing up to manage a division of the most conservative corporation in America like he manages the Partridge family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like Reuben Kincaid. Yeah. So he, um, he, but he kept like bringing the goods, like even while he's having this really embarrassing uh, midlife crisis, um, he's still, he's still creating like great cars. Like he came out with the, um, the Monte Carlo Ugh. in 1969. He was the head of the, he became head of Chevy. So he moved from head of Pontiac to head of Chevy. That's a big deal at that time. Um, and then he even advanced all the way up to what they call the 14th floor at GM. So he went from Pontiac to Chevy to now he's one of the main executives running one of the biggest corporations in the country. And he's walking around with like his chest hair sticking out, <laughs> making like finger guns at people. Like like on his way to a meeting. But the thing is, is he, he did not fit into that world at all. He did not. He, he bristled at that kind of stuff, and they didn't like him any more than he liked them. Yeah. He, um, I think in 72, he was the chief of GM's truck and car division, which he said was about 92% of what they produced. And this was the first, I think he was rumored to be in line for president, and this was when over these couple of years in the early 70s was when the first whispers of, like, how is this guy, like, he makes good money, but how is he living this kind of lifestyle? Mm -hmm. And is he grifting the company at all? And there were rumors that he was uh, taking kickbacks from parts people, like suppliers. And, you know, the the sort of rumors of impropriety started cropping up around this time. What's crazy is this would plague him for the rest of his life, basically. Mm -hmm. And yet... Any time, like, like something was formally done to investigate him, to bring him up on charges, it just it, it wouldn't stick. They just wouldn't stick. They, could, they never got him on anything that he did. And he did plenty of it, some of the stuff he probably didn't do. But he had that kind of reputation that was so bad that, that 
you know, somebody might still try to sue you based on how bad your reputation is. Yeah. And yet none of them were successful as far as I could tell. Uh, yeah, I didn't see anything that stuck. Uh, I think it was fall of 72 um, was when he finally departed. There was a text of a speech about uh, quality control that he was going to give to a private audience at GM, and -hmm. it got leaked out to the press. Rumors, he did it himself and leaked it. Uh, And there was a lot of negative press. Uh, And these these companies, not only were they huge, they were very private. And you didn't hear rumors and leaks in the press. Uh, You didn't talk about one another in the press. It was all very just sort of tightly controlled. And, and they were, of course, super ticked off about it. And in April of 73, uh, depending on who you asked, he quit working there either by resignation or by being fired. But GM just kept mute about the, the departure between the two. And so um, DeLorean was able to say, I'm the man who fired GM. Right. Be- because he, he was in charge of the like, – if GM wasn't speaking up, DeLorean could say basically whatever he wanted. And so he portrayed it as he got tired of GM. He said something like, even if you're making six hundred and fifty grand a year, if you hate the job, it's just not worth it. Which, I mean, on the one hand, that's absolutely true. And I get the impression that he really felt that way. On the other hand, it's probably true that GM fired him and yeah. just kept mom about it. Yeah, well, it's that whole, like, keeping it quiet thing, which he didn't care about at that point. No, but he had been living, Chuck, uh, largely on GM's dime. He expensed everything he could, (laughs) including stuff that never should have even been remotely expensed. But he was living on GM, and suddenly he wasn't able to expense everything. He still got his, I think, his bonuses. It was part of his his departure package, but he wasn't able to expense anything. And now all of a sudden, his lavish lifestyle is not being underwritten by anybody. Yeah. He, um, after this uh, separation from GM, he gets uh, divorced. I guess he looked at uh, Harmon and said, you know, enough of the Tic Tacs. You're 25, you're getting a little long in the tooth. Uh, And so he started dating a 22-year-old when he was 48 named uh, Christina Farrar. And she was a very, uh, you know, sort of semi-famous model. I guess she was pretty famous. Mm -hmm. Because I remember, like, seeing pictures of her at the time even and saying, like, oh, I know who that is. Uh, And they had four homes. They had the, the apartment in Manhattan and the aforementioned mansion on 434 acres in Bedminster, New Jersey, uh, which is right down the street from where I lived. And they had a daughter in 77 named Catherine. Yeah. So by all accounts and and all appearances, he suddenly was in a new phase of life, free from the shackles of GM's button-down corporate culture. New wife, new baby, new house, new houses— And uh, it's time for him to reinvent himself even further. And he's going to do that, he decides, by coming up with the most amazing car America has ever seen. Right. Uh, But he had a non-compete. And GM was like, hey, part of the severance package, if you want to keep this money coming your way, you Mm -hmm. can't just jump over and start working for another car company. So he sort of on the download started working on the DeLorean car uh, or the DeLorean uh, motor company. And I think he thought, I don't know, I think he definitely thought, well, this little sort of um, small production run of this weird sports car, uh, I'm not working with another car company, so that probably is okay. 
uh, with GM. Uh, and then once he started working, because, you know, he couldn't do it all by himself. So he had to kind of contract out and work with other car companies. Right. And they said, all right, you're now cut off. But that's also pretty rich that he's like, oh, we're just too dinky to, to be considered oh, yeah. a competitor. Totally. When one of the one of the reasons he wanted to found DeLorean Motor Company was to show Detroit, to stick it in their eye, to show them how to make it a real car in very much the same way that Elon Musk sought to show Detroit how to make an electric car and was actually right. successful in that sense. You, you, you can say what you want about him, but he's basically – single-handedly the reason why we have electric cars now. Yeah. Um, DeLorean tried to do kind of the same thing, to make a really cool, um, really reliable, really um, responsive car. Yeah. He Should just we talk about the car? Yeah. He, yeah. Let, let's talk about it, because it is a very cool car by, by any standard. Uh, he came along when gas mileage started to become, literally for the first time, sort of on Americans' minds. Uh, sort of the beginning of the gas crunch. So he was like, I want it to get to be fuel efficient. Uh, certainly wanted to be cool, but like you said, s- sort of affordable. Uh, something that was reliable, which is pretty funny considering how the DeLorean turned out. Mm-hmm. I think it was most known for being completely unreliable. Uh, and the thing I remember most about it, uh, I know you love those gull wing doors, but the thing I remembered most was the fact that it was stainless steel. Sure. Uh, and I remember being a kid and going, he made a stainless steel car, so it would never rust. That's genius. <laughs> yeah. It never occurred to me that it would never rust. I just thought it was to look cool. No, that's why he did it. I, I no, knew I was, that when I was 12. I don't know how. I was a very dumb kid. <laughs> well, you were younger. So um, one of the things uh, about the car is that if you if you look at it, it's just a very striking design, and that's because um, DeLorean hired like one of the premier car designers in the world, Giorgetto. Oh, I'm sorry, Chuck. Please take it. Giorgetto <laughs> uh, Giorgiario. Very nice. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> yeah, he's the guy who who designed the underwater car in the Spy Who Loved Me that James Bond drove. Yeah. He also designed the Lotus Esprit, which was what the car was. I think it was a, a, a Lotus Esprit, that James Bond car. And then he basically redesigned the Lotus Esprit for the um, DMC-12. Yeah, they look alike. Very much so. But um, DeLorean's uh, goal was to create a, an American car that Americans had never seen before. So it still kind of held water. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, He needed a lot of money to do it. And so he said, all right, I think I can get this thing up and running for 90 million bucks, which is close to 400 million today. And he set up a deal with uh, Puerto Rico uh, to manufacture there and exchange uh, in exchange for 60 million bucks in guaranteed loans. Mm -hmm. And then Britain stepped in and said, oh, no, no, no. He said, we'll, hold my tea. Yeah, we'll give you. <laughs> oh, that was good. Uh, we'll give you a lot more money than that, my friend, if we have some troubles going on over here, so much so that they're literally called the troubles. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about all the bad things going down here between the Catholics and the Protestants. Uh, and there's a lot of turmoil. And we've talked about this stuff on our podcast. They didn't say that because they didn't have a podcast. But they said, <laughs> right. if you bring your factory to Belfast, of all places, We'll give you, we'll guarantee you $106 million in investments and loans and grants. Yeah, and anyone who listened to our Bobby Sands episode uh, will remember that Belfast was like 
kind of ground zero for the troubles of in Northern Ireland. And this spot that they selected, a, a old cow pasture, was actually right between a Protestant housing development and a Catholic housing development. And they wanted to build the factory right between them. Yeah. And, or lower at least, the 80% unemployment in the area. 80%, eight That's, people yeah. out of 10 in this area were unemployed at the time. And John DeLorean was going to come in, build the state-of-the-art factory, and hire thousands of these people, um, Protestant and Catholic. And he was sensible. They built separate entrances for each group, <laughs> for real. I know, um, it's, it's nuts. But he came to town and in a lot of ways in, it created this sense of pride that had been missing um, among the workers that he hired. Yeah, he uh, certainly the money was the biggest part of it. I'm sure Britain was like, this is great. We can put these folks to work. But he just wanted that 106 mil. Uh, I think he got another 31 million from uh, investments in the U.S., mm-hmm. private investment, including Johnny Carson. Uh, I think he went in for half a million bucks, a ton of money, um, especially back then. And our old friend Sammy Davis Jr., <laughs> Mm-hmm. How did he accept? He said, "Babe, I really dig those doors. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in for 150." <laughs> so he invested as well, and he's got his money. He's got his separate entrances, and on October second, nineteen seventy eight, they broke ground on the plant mm-hmm. uh, to great protest. Yeah, there were plenty of protests. Again, there were a lot of people who were like, this is awesome. We're going to have good jobs. These are highly skilled technical jobs that were that are being created out of thin air here. But there were plenty of people who were like, this is a British project that they're building in Belfast. Brits go home. Yanks go home. Um, so not everybody was on board. And as, as a matter of fact, throughout the time that the Belfast um, factory was operating, DeLorean spent as little time there as possible because he was really yeah. worried about being murdered or kidnapped. Um, so he did not hang around there, um, and probably rightfully so. I'm sure he would have been a pretty good target for um, IRA or the um, oh, yeah. Ulster Liberation Force. Yeah. Um, who knows? And I'm sure anybody would have liked to have kidnapped him at the time. He was extremely famous and well-known to be super rich. Um, but there was another um, kind of bad sign, aside from the protesters, that some people still to this day say is what cursed DeLorean Motor Company, and maybe even John DeLorean himself. Was this the fairy tree? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, there was a special uh, plant there uh, on the place where they were going to build this factory. It was was a hawthorn bush, and they they called it like a a fairy tree. These workers there said, we're not going to cut this thing down. Uh, I'm not going to do my bad Irish accent and try and say it that way. Okay. Uh, But they did. Eventually, someone removed it, and some people say, like, that was— you know, the curse of the fairy tree. <laughs> that was Scottish. Yeah, it was pretty Scottish. <laughs> was Depending on where Scottish. you are in Ireland, though, that, that can pass. It sounds like groundskeeper Willie. Yeah, it did. <laughs> so um, the factory did open. Um, and again, DeLorean wasn't there very often. He, he spent his time in, in Park Avenue. Um, but his cars were suddenly being assembled. The thing is, um, during the design phase, he hired Lotus um, 
to, to build these cars. Lotus was making cars that were assembled by hand. Now DeLorean was asking them to build cars on an assembly line, yeah. and Lotus was like, okay, we're going to have to make some compromises here. And so little by little, the DeLorean DMC-12, the production version, became less and less like the, the dream version, the prototype that DeLorean had come up with. And some of the compromises he made basically sunk the car. Like, it wasn't just DeLorean and his Coke deal that we'll get to in a minute that sunk the company. The company was already sinking because it was making pretty bad cars that were yeah. really cool, but they they did not go very well. No, it was a bit of a disaster from the beginning. Uh, and these documentaries really kind of dive into just the problems with the car. Um, the first thing is it more than doubled in the cost that he wanted to sell it at. He wanted mm-hmm. to sell it for twelve. It cost twenty five grand, uh, which a Corvette at the time, a brand new Corvette, was about sixteen thousand. Wow. So all of a sudden, the DeLorean is a super luxury, or not luxury, but just a, a sports car for super rich people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it weighed nine thousand pounds more than they thought it was going to weigh. Not nine thousand pounds, <laughs> nine thousand extra pounds. Right. Uh, it had trouble meeting uh, mileage requirements. It was supposed to be super fuel efficient. Uh, it was very famously clunky, hard to drive. Slow, and this is sports uh, supposed to be a sports car, right? Because it was it was super heavy. It had this rear mounted uh, Renault engine that was a V six, and it just it drove more like a a bad stick shift station wagon than anything sporty. <laughs> yeah how how long did it take to go from zero to sixty? It took I, I don't know anything about fast cars, but ten seconds seems like a long time to me. It's a really long time. <laughs> I think uh, some Teslas and some Ferraris and cars like that um, are in like the three and a half second range. This is 10 know. seconds. Yeah, like a, a minivan can probably get from zero to 60 in, in 10 seconds. And not even a new one. So that was not good at all. And then they also had some really bad publicity problems too. Like the windows stuck. Apparently the dye they used for the um, the floor mats didn't hold fast and it would run and stain your shoes. Even your, <laughs> your Tom McCann GTO shoes that you're wearing. <laughs> Uh, and the Goldwing doors would get stuck and just would not open. And very embarrassingly, that happened at the Cleveland Auto Show. Somebody who was looking at the car got stuck inside for an hour because they could not get the doors open. Yeah, I watched a, a YouTube today of a, a DeLorean drive, like, road test. Mm-hmm. And these two guys, you know, it's a modern, you know, sort of thing because they're wearing cargo shorts. Um but one of the guys has a DeLorean, lets his friend drive it, and they have a camera in there. And, you know, it just looked like it was hard to drive. It didn't break super well. The reverse was this uh, – and I had an early VW Beetle where you had to push down on the thing and then left and back. Mm-hmm. But this, you had to pull the stick shift up and kind of over and up. And he had trouble kind of doing that. But he finally got the hang of it. But it it he described it as fast. I think he said it had a lot of torque. But when he, like, got it, I think starting in, like, second gear, it seemed like, um, was when it picked up because he was like, oh, man, this thing has got some real speed. Huh. Um, but I don't think, like, off the line it was that fast is maybe the deal. I gotcha. Yeah, not if it took 10 seconds to get to 60 for sure. <laughs> so there was a, another thing that was going on at the time. Like, like John DeLorean was earnestly trying to make these cars, but at the same time he was also robbing his own company blind. The first thing he did with that um, British uh, investment money 
uh, of, I think, about $130 million, was to set up a Swiss bank accounts that <laughs> he transferred the money through. And then apparently, and I don't believe this has ever been proven, but it's basically like just open your eyes, people. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot, if not most of that money, made its way from Switzerland to his personal accounts to finance his life. So basically, yeah. he said, thanks for all the money, Brits. You're chumps. I'm stealing this for my own personal gain. And that's what he did right out of the gate. And that's why I say he was a genuine grifter. He grifted the British government. He grifted some guy who owned a Wichita Cadillac um, uh, uh, dealership. Like, he grifted a lot of people. And, and in addition to all of the amazing stuff that he did, he also became like a genuine, serious, dyed-in-the-wool grifter. He grifted Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for that alone, that's that's pretty <sighs> in, infamous, if you ask me. All right. It just occurred to me we haven't taken our second break. So no. let's take a late break. We'll par one out for Sammy's 150, <laughs> and we'll be right back. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford. 
a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Okay, so where we left off was uh, John DeLorean is kind of siphoning money to l- fund his lavish lifestyle, mm-hmm. which it sounds like he kind of always did mm-hmm. uh, at GM as well. And he got about $150 million bucks, which is about $462 million, out of the British government um, saying, like, you know, he kind of kept it going, saying he was going to shut down production, which would be bad news, you know, for everyone concerned. Uh, but eventually, someone, the Iron Lady, would come around uh, in 1982. And as we all know, Thatcher didn't take any S from anyone. And she was like, enough's enough. Um, I'm getting conned by this American. Uh, we are getting conned. And basically said, you know what? We're not going to be your bank account anymore. Uh, they had to lay off about, uh, not quite half, but about 1,100 of their 26 workers in Belfast. And... DeLorean DMC went into receivership uh, pretty quickly. Um, they planned to sell about 30,000 cars every year. They own, uh, they didn't sell quite 9,000 cars total. And he needed to get about $17 million really fast if he wanted to keep this uh, insolvency from happening. So his back was up against the wall. He needed $17 million fast. And where else can you do that but in the drug trade? <laughs> right. What's interesting is his plight and his travails were so famous that he was approached with an idea to sell drugs to get money to to save his company. Like everybody knew that this was going on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how bad a press the DMC-12 got. And so he was approached. There was a, a Coke dealer named James Hoffman. Uh, who'd been smuggling drugs for uh, Pablo Escobar's Medellin cartel for years. He was also a paid informant for the FBI. And apparently, uh, some people say that um, that James Hoffman said, I'm going to deliver uh, John DeLorean to you guys. Just watch. And that he was the one who hatched this whole scheme to basically entrap John DeLorean mm-hmm. into selling a bunch of cocaine in order to save DeLorean Motor Company. That's right. Uh, the deal was specifically almost 60 pounds of Coke for six and a half million bucks that DeLorean or, you know, through his channels would then quickly uh, turn around and sell for $24 million, mm-hmm. which would, um, in theory, I guess, solve his financial problem with shutting the company down, or at least that's how he saw it. Uh, but like you said, he was a, a paid in, Hoffman was a paid informant. There was another guy on the scene who was a real undercover FBI agent named John Valestra, who DeLorean thought was a, a mob guy. And these famous videos came out. If you grew up in that era, you saw these videos with your own eyeballs. Um, we'll get to the twist on how that happened in a minute. But uh, there were these famous videos of this deal that went down in, a, I think it was like a hotel room, uh, where it's all very clearly laid out. And Hoffman even gives DeLorean a chance to back out and DeLorean says, I want to proceed. He tries the Coke. He says, this stuff is like better than gold. 
Um, but what it came down to, and we'll get to the court case in a minute, is whether or not they entrapped DeLorean and came to him with this idea or whether or not he hatched the idea and whether or not DeLorean, you know, was right in saying that like, Hey, this guy was threatening my family. Right. Uh, he said, I'm going to send your baby's daughter's head home in a shopping bag. And that's kind of where everything hinged in the trial. Right. And it would turn out that the jury basically said like, yes, dude, this guy was totally set up, ensnared, entrapped. Um, if you want to just look at it most basically, John DeLorean wasn't the one who came up with the, this drug scheme. He was approached by an FBI informant to, to, who proposed the drug scheme yeah, that's to DeLorean. That in and of itself is entrapment. But there was also malfeasance by the FBI agents working the case. They would backdate like reports and stuff like that and alter reports. Like it was just shady from the get-go. And and James Hoffman didn't come off as a particularly trustworthy person on the stand either. So in typical John DeLorean fashion, the jury acquitted him on all counts in August of 1984. So he went from being caught with 24 kilos of cocaine to walking on all counts um, and, and that's just John DeLorean. That's the John DeLorean story with the press covering this breathlessly every step of the way. Yeah, and here's a couple of addendums, uh, one of which, and I don't know if this is true, but there are rumors that the British government uh, held off on closing down that plant in cahoots with the American government mm-hmm. long enough to get him set up and captured. So what's funny is apparently DeLorean was working on his own grift where he was supposed to put up $2 million of the money to buy this cocaine initially, and he didn't have it. So he said, you know what? I'm going to give you guys controlling stakes of my company. And what he did was give these people that he thought were mobsters in bed with Pablo Escobar control of a shell company that had his name on it that was dormant, (laughs) that didn't have any assets whatsoever, that was now owned by the British government. So he was going to handcuff mobsters to the British government and take their money uh, in the form of the cocaine uh, profits that he was going to share and walk away with it. I forgot about that part. That's what he was planning on doing. (laughs) Uh, The little twist that I mentioned about how America saw this video so readily uh, was that Larry Flint, um, publisher of Hustler Magazine, um, he got a hold of those tapes, and he's the one that handed them over to PBS. Mm-hmm. And that's why everyone got to see it. And they had a hard time getting a trial off the ground because it was, you know, on the evening news. And, like, I was a, a teenager, and I saw this stuff. Right. So, like, everybody saw it. So eventually, you know, like like you said, that they managed to scrape a jury together that said uh, – uh, I think some of the quotes were they thought he was a, a, a shabby – or no, Hoffman was a shabby creep and was not believable at all. Mm-hmm. But they also thought, hey, DeLorean's not innocent here, but it was entrapment, so we have to say not guilty. Right. And they did. Again, he walked. But the thing is, is like he's – like his finances are a mess. Yeah. Like he's stolen – Tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars from the British government. Um, his, I don't know what he was doing with the money because he wasn't paying the mortgage on his estate in New Jersey. Um, so he ends up losing that. 
Um, there's another fraud case that was brought against him in Detroit, um, and he he was accused of stealing seventeen and a half million dollars uh, in regards to the to um, DeLorean Motor Company and its funding, and he managed to get away with that one too. And his his um, Attorney Howard Weitzman later said that he he was unfairly accused and entrapped in the cocaine case, but that the acquittal in Detroit was a miracle. Like he, he was totally guilty, and he still got off. Um, but as, as although he wasn't ever put in prison, his life was just becoming more and more ruined because he liked to live a certain way, but he had less and less money to pay for it, and fewer and fewer people he could scam. Yeah, his that same attorney also said. And this kind of nails it on the head, I think. He said, I've represented many people over the years, but John DeLorean had one of the most warped views of right and wrong. <laughs> and uh, in the documentaries with the footage, you can really get a sense that he really justified a lot of what he did, um, you know, to keep the car company going, to keep that plan open. And th- those are the things that people who have been grifting and are, and are entitled, like you'll often hear, someone describing them as not really having an understanding of what's truly right and wrong. Right. Uh, That Bedminster estate uh, eventually would wind up being sold to Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's when you hear about the Bedminster Golf Club. That's the one they're talking about. That was DeLorean's estate. Yeah. The one that you lived by. The one that I The other reason it's famous. Uh, He got divorced to Farrar uh, just a couple of months after the verdict. And although like modern day for our really kind of gushes about him. She was like, Oh, John was just the best. And we had so much fun. And, uh, but she got the heck out of Dodge. Uh, he got married to Sally Baldwin in 2002. They had a daughter. He had plans to hatch a new car company. Uh, I think for a while he wanted to make a watch, um, that was going to be powered by your movement, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a real thing now. Right. I think, yeah, Not that one, but so. they there are watches that are powered by that your movement, right? I, I believe so, yes. I went to look up and see if any of these watches were ever made, and what I stumbled upon was uh, a very limited edition watch. There were 450 of them. This is not that company, but someone got a hold of his original DeLorean and made mm-hmm. watches out of them. Oh, wow. And I'm not a watch guy, but I saw this watch, and I was like, oh, man, I think it's nice looking. Oh, yeah? Uh, but it's two grand, so <laughs> for so a not watch guy, that's not right. happening. Speaking of collector stuff, apparently in the 1980 American Express c- Christmas catalog, they were offering gold, 24 gold-plated DeLoreans, and two of them sold. So two gold-plated wow. DeLoreans exist in the world. One of them is at, like, uh, Peterson Auto Museum in Los Angeles, I think. Mm-hmm. But for a while, it was in the lobby of Snyder National Bank of Snyder, Texas. So some <laughs> Snyder oil man, I'm sure, scraped up one of the two from the American Express oh, Christmas great. catalog. Yeah, Pocket in the lobby. And I, I want... I don't know about that one either. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want something to go by unmarked. He had a daughter, another, like you said, another daughter, Sheila. Uh-huh. Uh, he was yeah, 77 Sheila. at the time. <laughs> hey, that's he sex died drive. three years later yeah. after he had a daughter. He died three years later at age 80. Isn't that yeah. nuts? Yeah, he died of a stroke. Uh, but how was he buried? <laughs> he was buried in a black motorcycle jacket, jeans, denim shirt, and sunglasses tucked in to the jacket. Yeah, probably DeLorean sunglasses, I would guess. Probably. And, and there's a cool D- tombstone. Yeah, it's got a DMC-12 with the doors open. Yeah, I looked it up. <laughs> Looks awesome. 
I'm probably going to get the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> the same uh, headstone? <laughs> yeah, I'll be like, I just make his again, but right. put my name on it. <laughs> Uh, so we can't not talk about Back to the Future a little bit here at the end. Um, obviously, that's where the car got so much notoriety was from that huge, huge movie mm-hmm. that uh, was turned into a time machine. And uh, it was supposed to be a Mustang. They had a deal, the producers, <laughs> with a Mustang where they were going to, you know, it was a product placement thing. Mm-hmm. And apparently Bob Gale, who had been working on the script with Zemeckis, said, uh, Doc doesn't drive a effing Mustang. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I never, I know this is nitpicky, but I never thought the DeLorean was Doc's car. I, I figured he just sourced it for this mm-hmm. project, right? Yeah, I never gave it that much thought either. But I mean, yeah. Bob Gale's like the, <laughs> he's like the, the writer of the script, you know? Of course. Uh, but because the DeLorean was very undependable, uh, much like Bruce the Shark and Jaws, this car did not work well at all. And the apparently the prop guys and the FX guys were always being called on set just to get this thing like running, and they had a really hard time filming that sequence in the parking lot. Yeah, I mean, like the car broke down. That's how bad those things were. Yeah, and, and this was just a couple of years after it was built. This wasn't like years and years later. Like this car should have been running just fine. So I find that hilarious. But there's one other thing about that movie too. To those of us, to, to like my my cohort and beyond, that movie completely rehabilitated and changed the opinion of the DeLorean and John DeLorean himself. Had that movie not come along, he would have been known as like a coke dealer who got off, uh, a grifter, a scam artist, and somehow being associated with Back to the Future and yeah. his car being chosen as a time machine just changed the way that people see him, I think, in history. Yeah. I mean, if you got a, I don't know how much they are, but if you got a lot of money, you can get one of those tricked out like uh, like Doc Brown's. Uh, that mm-hmm. that dude from uh, that wrote Ready Player One has got one famously mm-hmm. uh, with the you know the little rocket boosters on the back and all that fun stuff. The flux capacitor canister. Oh, he's got like the time machine version. Wow. Oh yeah, that's what I'm saying. You can you can buy those like fully kitted out to look like the Back to the Future car. That's pretty cool. Uh, I want to drive one one day. If someone's got one, I'll, I'll fly to you and have dinner with you and your family if you let me drive it. You, can, you should <laughs> look, up George, look up George R.R. R. Martin. He has one, and he's in New Mexico, where, which you love now. So go visit him. All the, uh, all the famous rich geeks have them. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it, huh, for DeLorean? Yeah, that's a fun one. I love these episodes. Good story. Good story. Good job, Chuck. Uh, And since Chuck said good story, I said good job. You put those two together, carry the one, you've got listener mail. (laughs) Uh, Oh, boy, I should read this one, but it's super long, so we'll save that. Okay. Uh, Our old friend put together a best tangents list again from the year. Mm Mm-hmm. Great. But uh, we'll we'll read that one later because this one ran long. Okay. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, Chuck's A Vacation. Uh, Hey guys, over the New Year's holiday, my husband, kids, parents, and my sister's family rented a big condo in northern Michigan. Uh, The first morning over breakfast, I asked my sister how she slept. Uh, Actually pretty terrible. We must be right over the furnace. It was really loud. Kept banging on and off all night. Maybe I need some white noise. And I said, you know, Charles W. Chuck Bryant prefers brown noise. And I have to say I agree with him and find brown noise superior to white noise. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yes, I said the full name mimicking uh, Josh introducing him. Nice. You play, you play a part too. Uh, Chuck likes brown noise. I've never heard of that. 
Then we promptly went through the various noises and the colors, and all of us found brown, all of us, to be the most soothing. Uh, the backstory here is my sister is the one who introduced me to your show. Mm-hmm. We both love it. We all love the random topics. Thank you to our a hoot. Uh, when we're wrapping up a phone call or text exchange, our running joke is to say we're really busy because we need to listen to an episode. Uh, now, if you excuse me, I need to get back to understanding how circus families work. <laughs> That's a good uh, one. That is a good one. Uh, and then half the time we start talking about what we found fascinating about the last episode. Uh, circling back, uh, my sister tried the brown noise, slept like a baby for the rest of the vacation, so Chuck really saved the day. And that is from Hillary R. Uh, Vadnall. And uh, she didn't mention her sister's name, which is really selfish. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Hillary, uh, and your uh, unnamed sister. You're not selfish. Uh, I'm kidding, of course. No, of course. Um, if you want to be like Hillary and not be selfish, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts my iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.